Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. I'm very happy to have on today Dr. Michael Prigil. Welcome, doctor. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm I'm great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on here today. This is an important topic. A lot of people will benefit from our discussion today, and a lot of people are very interested in, in, in this topic. So I'm just going to go ahead and get started um, and ask you if you could just briefly introduce yourself and, and what's your background, what got you interested in the research of the Quran, and what are your current academic interests? Uh, okay, well, sure. Um, so... How far back to go? Uh, I'm originally from Hawaii. Uh, I grew up on Oahu, but my family's roots are actually on Maui. Um, but I've I lived most of my adult life uh, on the East Coast. I, I, I moved to the East Coast for college when I was 17, back in the 80s, um, and spent uh, most of again most of my adult life in. New York and Boston, and then uh, in the South, North Carolina, where I taught for several years, uh, and I moved to Los Angeles two years ago, back to the back to the West Coast. I primarily identify as a scholar of comparative religion. Uh, my kind of broad er- area of expertise is you know scriptural cultures of late antiquity and the Middle Ages, um, and my generally my general publication focus has been on. Uh, the reception of biblical Jewish Christian tradition in the Quran and Islam, uh, although I've certainly taught all kinds of things over my over the course of my career. Uh, my my new book, that, which is uh, just coming out, is entitled The Golden Calf Between Bible and Quran, Scripture, Polemic, and Exegesis from Late Antiquity to Islam. It's in the Oxford Studies in the Abrahamic Religions series from OUP. Um, the book is actually out now, though I think that the official publication date is August. Um, so how did I get started? Uh, I went to, I was lucky enough to go to Columbia uh, for my undergraduate education, and uh, I, I did a double major in Middle East and uh, religion. Uh, I did an MA at Harvard after that, uh, which ended up being mainly in Bible and Jewish studies. Uh, I then went back to Columbia for my PhD in religion, which I received in 2008. Uh, I was professor of religious studies at Elon University in North Carolina for seven years. Uh, And then in 2015, I moved to Boston University where I was, uh, I had the position of interlocutor in the Institute for the Study of Muslim Societies and Civilizations. Uh, Interlocutor basically meant that I was the coordinator of the Mizan Initiative uh, Mizan is an interdisciplinary digital scholarship initiative with an associated uh, peer-reviewed journal, which I edited for three years. Uh, I was also editor, the founding editor of the Journal of the International Quranic Studies Association and co-edited the first two volumes of that journal. And uh, as I said before, I'm currently in Los Angeles. I most recently taught in the Study of Religion program at the University of California, Los Angeles. Yeah, and that's that's me. <laughs> so, in I guess in terms of my specific research interests, 
um, you know, again, my, my BA was in religion and Middle Eastern studies. I was originally interested in uh, medieval Islamic thought and Sufism because uh, that was the specialization of my mentor at Columbia, uh, a, a very well-known scholar named Peter Ahn. Um, I, so I, I did, you know, religion, Middle East studies, focusing on Isl- Islamic studies. But then when I did my, my master's, I guess I had some interest in looking at kind of doing comparative work on, say, Kabbalah and Sufism. And so uh, when I went to Harvard for my MA, I wanted to pursue that, but nobody was really doing that. So I ended up um, just doing Hebrew and getting into biblical studies and uh, the study of early Judaism in particular. And I think that probably led to my, my particular interest in the you know, the Jewish background to Islam in particular, I think. When I decided to go back to school for my PhD, I went back to Columbia. Uh, and again, I worked with Peter Ahn. Uh, Peter was uh, a very widely known scholar and, and, a, and a kind of a, a big personality at Columbia University. He was most widely known for his uh, monograph, Satan's, Satan's Tragedy and Redemption, uh, Iblis in Sufi Psychology, which uh, was based on his dissertation, which he did with Anne-Marie Schimmel at Harvard. And basically that, that work, I think, was groundbreaking because it, it is a comparative analysis of scriptural traditions, but he has a particular emphasis on the Quran and Muslim tradition as you know, active translations or reinterpretations or transformations of an older biblical Jewish Christian heritage, right? In in Peter's book, uh, Satan is an Islamic character, right? And very and very little is done on the origins, although he does talk a bit about Iblis's roots in First Enoch, the myth of the fall of the Watchers in Judaism, things like that. Um, I would contrast that sort of an approach with, I think, what we see now and what I certainly do in my book, which is to emphasize kind of the reverse, that we look at the Quran as the end result of a set of processes rather than emphasizing the Quran as a beginning of a process that unfolds into Islamic tradition. I can talk about talk about that more later. Um, but in my PhD training, I, uh, I, I, I basically kind of balanced Islamic studies and late antique studies. I did Arabic and Syriac did a lot of work on uh, traditions that were kind of the Near Eastern context for Islam's emergence, uh, things like that. The, the project on the Golden Calf, which was the germ of what became the book, um, kind of combined uh, my diverse interests, which was you know, the Quran, its background in late antique Judaism and Christianity, um, but also kind of the history of the reception of the Quran in the West, the hist- as well as the history of tafsir and how tafsir reflects Muslim engagements with and transformations of Quranic, Quranic material. All these things kind of came together in the dissertation and then in turn um, are reconfigured in various ways in the, in the book. <laughs> so that's, that's about it. Understood. Thank you so much for that. So, Doctor, you said that you were involved with uh, the founding of Iqsa, right? Yes. Or I don't know. So like that, but uh, the International Quranic Studies Association. What was kind of the impetus in, in, in founding that? Oh well, uh, okay. Well, how, to, how how far back to go? So 
I think the the real genesis of Ixa goes back, I think, to the middle of you know the last decade, right? About I think 2005 is uh, Gabriel Reynolds held his first uh, big conference on the origins of the Quran at Notre Dame. I'm pretty sure that was 2005. Yeah, there was one in 2005, and I think the follow-up was 2009. Um, and these were, I can talk more about this in terms of kind of his, history of the field, but this was part of, I think, a, a larger shift in the field where people, so people will contest this, but I think that in a, in a large part, the shift in Quranic studies that occurs around 2004-2005, that this has a lot to do with Luxembourg, the release of and the controversy around Christoph Luxembourg's, uh, what is it, the, the, the Syro-Aramaic reading of the Quran, right, where this uh, pseudonymous scholar suggested that the Quran was actually not in you know, classical Arabic, but really re- reflected, linguistically reflected a kind of hybrid uh you know, Syriac, Aramaic, and Arabic fusion, and that essentially the Quran had been misunderstood by Muslims and thus by Western scholars for since time immemorial, and that the uh, Quran was better understood as kind of a palimpsest of older Syriac traditions in particular, and then he tries to kind of decode difficult passages and kind of runs them through a, a Syriac language filter, and then comes up with kind of like some startlingly (laughs) unconventional readings Uh, and notoriously of course his his the classic the classic example of this was the the reading of the the horis as grapes rather than these kind of virginal heavenly maidens Uh, this of course spurred this enormous controversy this really like loud loud out outspoken objections to this in particular i think in europe and I mean, obviously in the Islamic world. And I think that after that, there there was an attempt by scholars to start to try to reevaluate uh, what Luxembourg was getting at. And so I, if you look at the 2005 conference, the 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 proceedings of which are published as uh, what the Quran in its historical context, I think from Rutledge, uh, that that there was this. Several scholars got together and said, well, you know, Luxembourg's intent is uh, suspect, <laughs> right? His intentions are clearly like, polem- clearly like polemical, reductive. But, you know, what, what is the relationship of the Quran to the Syriac heritage in particular? And, and, and so, of course, the implicit question is, how does the Quran relate as a historical literary religious document to the larger cultural religious environment? There are several really interesting contributions that were published in that first set of proceedings and then the follow-up set of proceedings. The next step after that was, um, again, Gabriel Reynolds, or with a number of collaborators, organized the Quran Seminar, which met from 2012, uh, 20, sorry, 2012 to 2013. And that, that was the, the results of that were published as the, the, the Quran Seminar Commentary from De Gruyter, which I think was just published a couple of years ago. Uh, and I was part of that initiative, and that was a year-long sequence of meetings where where there was kind of a collaborative a process of collaborative discussion and commentary on 
a number, like 50, uh, 50 problematic or difficult or well-known passages. I think ICSA basically unfolds out of those conversations that that there was a sense among many of the participants that you know this this is a conversation that can, should continue that these discussions serious scholarly discussions of the nature of the Quran as a text its background its various aspects that this should be what institutionalized so I think it was only a couple of years after that 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 we founded ICSA as as an autonomous scholarly organization uh, after a, a number of years of, of discussion and diplomacy and, and so forth. But I, I do think that ICSA comes directly out of that, or those original discussions and, and meetings. Maybe, maybe somebody would correct me, but I think that's my understanding of the, the genesis of the project. Understood. Thank you. And I think that kind of gives us a good segue to this first question. What is your take on the state of chronic studies today, and and how has this field changed over the last couple decades? Sure. Um, yeah. How how do, so much to say about this? Um, you know, I, so I did my general exams in you know at Columbia, probably around I don't know 2003 2004, and you know my you know the the, the structure was and I mean I, different schools have different policies and and, and uh, approaches. You know, the, the, the first exam was a kind of comprehensive reading list, broad approach, and then the, the second exam was, you know, more focused text study and translation. And I guess that's not unusual. The, you know, my, my first bibliography is something like, I don't know, 10 to 12 pages long. The works on the Quran on that bibliography fit on one page. I had about four or five books and about a dozen articles, and that really represented the state of the field at that time. I mean, there, there obviously is this long history of, of Quranic studies in the West, but in comparison with other fields like Hadith, uh, historiography, things like that, I put I had more focus on that. Because there was just not as much active work being done on the Quran in the early 2000s. I would say that um, at that time, the two most recent monographs of real significance in English had been um, Jez Hodding's uh, The Idea of Idolatry and the Emergence of Islam, which was published in 1999, uh, and Dan Madigan's The Quran Self-Image, which was, I think, 2000, 2001. Uh, both of these books were massively important. They were unusual for their focus on the Quran. I'm not saying that nobody else is publishing on the Quran at the time, but you know, Quranic studies is at that time part of a larger kind of portfolio of things that are happening in Islamic studies in general, right? The other, the other book that that I remember of, of significance around that that came out around that time was uh, John Toland's Saracens which was, I think, important for reviving interest in the history of Western engagements with Islam and how, the, how those engagements uh, impacted academic approaches up to the present day. That th these are things that I think were in the atmosphere that influenced the way that I went about uh, my dissertation work. But again, to emphasize, you know, again, before Lux the Luxembourg controversy or whatever we want to call it, 
I think there was, you know, relatively little recent work on the Quran and how it relates to late antiquity or to its background or how tafsir emerged as a discourse or any of those things, right? There had been a lull in activity on the Quran, you know, vis-a-vis the Quran itself uh, for a number of decades. And I think this has to do with the, the legacy of the impact of revisionism that people were that there was kind of a, a deadlock in approaches to the Quran. People were not sure how to proceed in terms of studying the Quran or or the life of the Prophet. Um, you know, Angelica Neuwirth certainly had done a number of things at that point. Uh, Sidney Griffith, I think around that time, uh, Reuben Firestone had published a couple of things of, of interest where he was shifting focus from Islamic tradition to the Quran itself. Uh, certainly Andrew Rippon, had published a number of things, but, but, you know, the kind of scholarly energy that we see now, <laughs> right. That, that of the last 10 years or so, this just wasn't there, you know, when I was doing my PhD training and I'm pretty sure that a number of people who, who were my peers who came up around that time w- would agree with me that, that, um, you know, we, we, Western academia was not producing the kinds of specialist work on the Quran that it is right now. You know what I mean? So that's that. I guess would be my 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 way of saying that the the sea change <laughs> that we see that begins that begins around 2005 and carries through like the the end of of the first decade of the the 21st century that 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 five years I think was really important for kind of shifting the discourse. And now certainly if you looked at the the state of the field that in in America and Europe there suddenly is this renewed scholarly energy that's going into uh chronic studies again i think that's that's the the biggest development i think of chronic studies in recent in recent years was this renovation and renaissance of interest right i would i want to say that i i I don't want to make it seem like ixa is the only place where contemporary scholarship on the Quran has flourished I, i just think it's it's been the most important venue in terms of emphasizing a certain kind of historical critical uh scholarship especially work on the quran's relationship to its milieu right but but certainly by i think by the mid 2000s you know the journal of chronic studies journal of chronic studies starts publishing i think around 2000 so that's that's an ongoing uh interest at that time uh abdul halim is at at soaz is organizing these conferences and had done a few at that point. Uh, he's working on his Quran translation, which I think is published, I think around 2002, that that's a watershed, I think for the field. So this is the Soaz scene. Um, Hodding is at Soaz as well in history. Uh, and Angelica Neuwirth and her students are doing their thing. And that's that, uh, you know, we call that like the, the Corpus Quranicum <laughs> circle or whatever, whatever we want to designate them as. Uh, their work is starting to become better known, especially in the U.S. Um, there was a Quran and Bible unit in SBL that was founded, I want to say, around 2003 or so that I was part of for a number of years. There's an AAR Quran group, which was flourishing uh, and continues to flourish. So I think that all these things had begun probably by by 2001 or so but really start to take off by the by the end of of the the first decade of the 2000s and now of course we see this in the last 10 years we've seen this kind of critical mass of people who are doing 
truly critical and wide-ranging and scholarship on a variety of topics pertaining to the Quran. Understood. And with this renovation of the field, you know, older questions, older theories kind of require newer interpretations, different perspectives, and new questions come to the fore. I wonder if any of this has affected kind of the training of your average chronic studies scholar and, you know, who's doing their PhD or something like this. Is there more of an emphasis on language study or, I mean, have you seen that there's a change in, in a, you know, in kind of the, the, the training of the, of the average scholar of chronic studies? You know, uh, I think you would, you could, you would have to do a broader survey of the field to see what was going on, because I think people are, of course, doing all kinds of different things, but it would be a fascinating project, if, it, if anybody out there is looking for a dissertation topic, <laughs> a fascinating, fascinating subject would be to do a serious, uh, kind of like sociological and kind of discursive analysis of you know, the state of chronic studies in America from an institutional perspective, right? Like, how many students are there out there right now who are, who would identify as doing projects in Quranic studies, right? How many people would have identified that way, say, around 2003? You could just do an analysis of dissertations over the last 20 years, and you could easily see the shifts, I think. I think, the, of course, the biggest shift would be Syriac, right? That, I mean, even, even when people... I mean, so so something I could talk about at, at length. Maybe we can we can segue to this later. Is that, um, you know, after the work of Geiger and his followers in the 19th century, going up to the, the early 20th century, of course, right, there's massive interest in the Jewish background uh, to Islam, to the Quran and Islam, and of course, so in this, there's a a subfield of people, and it's still a subfield of people today, of course, who do work. Uh, Kind of comparative Hebrew, Arabic, uh, Jewish, Quranic, Islamic studies, right? The work on Syriac and the Quran, of course, was pioneered by certain people in the early 20th century, particularly uh, Alphonse Mingana, but had really, I mean, had a, a very short, I think, span of, of time when that was, that was a kind of an active interest, and then it kind of died out. But we've seen now kind of a revival of interest in in both Syriac language and Syriac literature as as the kind of furnishing the most meaningful uh, comparanda to the Quran, right? And and so now it's kind of like if you if you were to say uh, I'm doing a degree in Quranic studies, naturally the assumption would be that you were doing both Arabic and Syriac. Like the the the, the idea that you would be working on the Quran in a historical critical way and not have any exposure to Syriac as well as Arabic now I think would be kind of unthinkable <laughs> you know, that's that, that is of course assuming that you're doing that kind of genealogical work right the literary you're working on the the, the background the literary horizons that said and something I, I would really emphasize there are all of these other fields within chronic studies that are now thriving that were, were hardly there even 10 years ago right people are working on paleography the manuscript tradition uh related epigraphic corpora right that there's there all of these other things that are happening that don't necessarily involve, you know, looking at, say, the the Syriac memory of, of Ephraim, <laughs> for example, but would, would require a different kind of skill set. But these these subfields that require their own kind of like technical expertise, these again are hardly these hardly existed even like twenty years ago, right? 
Um, in, in preparation for this discussion and, and anticipating a question like this, I actually uh, looked at there, – there is a bibliographic database at Hebrew University or hosted at Hebrew University that um, is basically a comprehensive database of Syriac studies. And just on a lark, I checked uh, references to the Quran <laughs> in, in the, the, the database, and, and it yields interesting – results because so basically it yields something like 45 records right most of the the articles it it yields have been published since 2007 there are a few on the quran in early christian muslim dialogue right a genre a genre that's represented in both arabic and syriac of course right so a few entries on this there are a couple of reviews of luxembourg's work or comments on on luxembourg's work but the majority of that 40, those 45 records um, are discussions of the Syriac substrate or background or parallels to the Quran itself, right? The, the use of Syriac as a tool for exegesis of difficult or problematic passages in the, in the Quran or, or, or as a way of elucidating their background. Probably at least 35 records there. All of these are pieces that have been published since 2007, and to my mind, there are actually several noteworthy omissions. <laughs> so, and this is just this one database. So, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I would be willing to bet that if you were to do a survey of the literature in Western languages going back to 2005, and were to try to tease out all of the pieces, serious research pieces that have been done on the relationship of Syriac to the Quran, you would yield at least 100 hits, easily, I think, including dissertations, monographs, book chapters, what have you. Um, this, I think, has been revolutionary, right? That this was just not a scholarship that really existed previous to, say, 2000. There, again, there are a few people who are early forerunners to this approach, and it all goes back to, say, Mingana, uh, a few other people in the early 20th century, but this has just been a sea change that I think cannot be, uh, the importance of this cannot be, I think, overestimated in terms of transforming what what scholars on the Quran do or are expected to do. Again, I'm only talking about this specific branch of the Quran, like looking at the Quran's literary background, right? The archaeology of, of the, the Quran as, as a, a, a literary scriptural construct. I don't mean that all approaches to the Quran yeah, but that, I don't mean to say that this is the only kind of scholarship that counts, right? I'm just saying that this one particular branch of scholarship, again, did not exist 20 years ago. I want to congratulate you once again on your book, The Golden Calf Between Bible and Quran, Scripture, Polemic, and Exegesis from Late Antiquity to Islam, which was recently published by the Oxford University Press. How would you locate this work in all of these trends that, that you had previously described? And how do your interests come together here? Yeah, so the, the history of this project is actually probably illustrative of what I've just described, right? Because when I first started working on golden calf traditions, it was probably as part of my uh, my master's work. And, and actually what I was originally interested in was uh, medieval Jewish commentary on the golden calf narrative. And because what what originally... What originally inspired inspired this work was I, I think I had noted that I was originally interested in the kind of intersections of Kabbalah and Sufism, for example, 
And so, so there was a time when I was more of a scholar of, I guess, of medieval thought, right? And in the comments in Ibn Ezra's, so Ibn Ezra, one of the most important uh, commentators of of the Jewish Middle Ages, right? Ibn Ezra, 12th century figure uh, from Spain, widely traveled, ends up, I think he dies in Iraq, I think, sometime around, like before 1200. Uh, Ibn Ezra, a major intellectual figure, um, his commentary on the Golden Calf is very strange. <laughs> if you come to it with primarily a knowledge of you know how the golden calf is generally understood in you know jewish and christian tradition that his his interpretation is shocking because what what ibn ezra says is that the israelites actually animated the calf that that aaron was a prophet who was kind of uh but who was well versed in kind of esoteric knowledge, <laughs> uh, kind of like, like, like the Aaron is kind of like a proto Kabbalist <laughs> in Ibn Ezra's understanding, and he he creates the calf as a magical construct, and he refers to the calf as kavod hone kavia, which means um, it is a glory, and the, here glory is a technical term for. Um, a spiritual entity that is kind of that that it manifests the presence of God Himself. That that it's a that that it's a um, like an earthly manifestation of, of the divine presence. So the, the 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 calf is a glory that dwells in a corporeal form. <laughs> uh, I thought this was very strange, and 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 he says this both in endowing the story with this kind of magical aura which i thought was fascinating but also he does this to kind of rehabilitate the reputation of aaron that aaron that when aaron is engaging the calf he is actually create or creating the calf he's actually um doing something that's positive and legitimate but what happens is the israelites mistake the calf for an idol and then they worship it accidentally essentially and this again very very complex history to this um in his immediate context, Ibn Ezra is in dialogue with Saad Yaka'on and certain Karaite thinkers. His work is then, this, this notion of the calf in his work is then uh, reinterpreted by Nachmanides, who's another great commentator whose work is, on the, whose biblical commentary is suffused with Kabbalistic ideas. But anyway, the point was that at some point I, 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 under, I came to realize that this is in some sense a gloss on Islamic tradition, right? Because in the Quran, as it is commonly understood or represented in tafsir and other genres of, of Islamic literature, that the golden calf is alive, right? That there is this, this phrase that's used to describe the calf, ijl jasad lahu khwaran, a calf, a body that lows. Um, this is explained as uh, the magical animation of the golden calf at Sinai, which is, which is made by, not by Aaron, but a character who's called Samiri, commonly understood as the Samaritan, that there is this kind of mythological reinterpretation of the golden calf narrative in, in, that, in the Quran that then you know, is, is represented in the tafsir and percolates out into Islamic tradition. The standard interpretation of the so, so my original take on this was, oh yeah, so this is in the Quran, this is 
you know, possibly has to do with certain Jewish antecedents. I can talk more about that in a minute, but essentially this is a, a, a view of the golden calf episode that eventually was so widespread in Islamic culture that it precipitates this reinterpretation in the Jewish medieval commentators. This was my original, <laughs> my original project. And, and what happened in, in the course of my work on the, the narratives was that um, I got interested in this, this claim that the Quranic narrative reflects Jewish precursors. And as I think most of the people listening to this podcast will understand that this is a time-honored tradition, right? That since the time of uh, Abraham Geiger in the early 19th century, before that, there's been this reflexive urge to say that um, when, when the Quran engages the Bible, reinterprets the Bible, that generally speaking, there's a Jewish pedigree to those traditions, that the Quran leans heavily on Jewish antecedents in creating its own versions of biblical narratives, and, and then they then evolve and are further, what, Islamicized in tafsir and other genres, right? And I got interested in this question because there's this strange thing in the Quran where the the version of the golden calf story that we see there with Samiri and the animate calf, it stands in very strange relationship to the supposed Jewish precursors. All of the scholarly literature says that there is a handful of of Jewish traditions, particularly one from a text called Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, that portrays uh, an animate golden calf that is then that that gives the appearance of life and then misleads the Israelites into worshiping it as a as a legitimate deity. Right? When you look at the Jewish traditions that are cited as the precursors to the Quran, you look at the Quranic tradition itself or the Quranic text itself, and you look at Islamic tradition, it's not entirely clear what the, the logical connections are between the stories, because the Quran is extremely vague in the way it, it describes the, the, this narrative. And what we see is a very kind of a full-fledged or very clear imaginative re, um, reinterpretation of the story in these Jewish traditions on the one hand and in the tafsir on the other, I began to doubt whether this material was actually reflective of the Quran itself. And I can remember the, the moments where I, where I kind of realized this, that, that it, my thesis essentially was that the Jewish traditions that were held to be the influences on the Quranic story were actually themselves derived from tafsir. And so I, I tried to kind of reorganize this, the, the, the chain of transmission and evolution of the story, where conventionally it's understood, you know, the story in the Midrash has a certain form, it's then transmitted to the Quran, the Quran is, Quran's meaning is then unfold, further unfolded in the Tafsir. And my argument essentially was that the Quran is essentially engaged with a biblical precursor, lacks a lot of the elements that are said to be, you know, taken over from Jewish precursors. The, the Quran then is taken the chronic story is taken in new directions in the tafsir literature and then these supposed jewish influences that that were you know germinal for the unfolding of the chronic story that these are themselves just reflexes of the later tafsir tradition in other words scholars have always kind of gotten the the the, the genealogy of development of the tradition backwards and there was a lot of there was 
there was a lot going on in 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 this project that I think so let me put it this way so in the earlier like late 90s early part of the the 2000s as I said there wasn't a lot of work on the Quran itself but there were certain people who were publishing things where people were beginning to question the approach to the Quran that had always been upheld in uh, the Western academia, right? And in particular, I want to credit uh, Brandon Wheeler. Brandon Wheeler wrote a couple of things between, say, 19, like the late 90s and the, the early 2000s that really had a huge impact on me in terms of thinking about what was really going on in the Quran. Um, Brandon published a, a piece in 1998 with the not very exciting title, The Jewish Origins of Quran, 1865 to 82. Um, what this is, is his reevaluation of the theory of where the story of uh, Moses and the servant of God, who's usually identified as Khidr, right? Where, where does this story come from? Because if you look in the literature, going back to the 19th century, the claim is that there is a Jewish precursor to that story. Wheeler unpacks this, and what he's able to demonstrate is that Essentially, scholars have the argument backwards, that the claim of a Jewish precursor is latched onto a text which is a much later uh, Jewish appropriation of an Islamic story. <laughs> so again, the case is that the, the, the Quranic story has a certain kind of primacy. It's unfolded and explained in various ways in tafsir, and then Jewish authors are aware of the Islamic take on the story, and then they appropriate it for themselves, they create a Jewish version. The Jewish version is then assumed by Western scholars to have priority, and so the literature claims, oh yes, this late text, which is a commentary on a commentary on the Quran, is in fact the source of the Quran. I found this mind-blowing because it just showed how Western scholarship had brought these presuppositions about the Quran's lack of originality to the study of the Quran. Um, he, he, a few years after that, he published a book on, uh, I, I think called, just called Moses in the Quran Islamic tradition where he did not. So he, what his approach there was the same, that he looked at the literature on certain problematic aspects of the, of the, the story of Moses in the Quran. And he showed how scholars had made really wildly inaccurate, uh, misleading claims about the dependence of the Quran and Islamic tradition on Jewish and Christian precursors, and he was able to kind of deflate a lot of those claims. What's interesting about that book is that he did not offer a lot of original conjectures as to what the Quran actually meant. He was concerned to tell you, well, what scholars have always said this means is probably not what it means, but he was very reticent to offer new interpretations. I would really emphasize that that's not a, that's not a flaw of his work in itself. I think that was pretty common for uh, scholars working at the time where there was a reluctance to offer original interpretations that went against the grain of the traditional Islamic tradition, uh, traditional Islamic explanations in particular, right? And, and this was the background to which I wrote my dissertation, which was about, basically about how the Quranic calf story is not dependent on these Jewish precursors, but I did not offer a very developed uh, hypothesis to what the story the story of the calf and the Quran actually means that is what I do in the book <laughs> but but in even like around 2005 it, it 
there was act, I would I would say how to put this I in presenting my work at conferences and to peers I occasionally would meet with actual active resistance that still around 2004 you could get up at a conference and say well tafsir the tafsir tradition says this thing about the, about the Quran but it, the Quranic story probably means this and tafsir is doing something different and people would tell you you know hey you can't say that you can't say that you know the Quran better than Muslim commentators. The Muslim commentators clearly have like primacy in in determining what's in the Quran. I I think that this you could not imagine that happen happening now. I think that that people have gotten kind of used to the idea that there is a like a legitimate a legitimate scholarly discourse which separates Quran and Tafsir. But I have to emphasize this was very unusual <laughs> in the, it, as recently as 15 years ago. You still met active resistance to this. I think because historically when people say, well, Muslims don't understand the Quran, there's clearly a, a polemical intention behind that, right? That when people said, oh, well, Quran means X, but Tafsir says Y, there there are nefarious intentions behind that, that scholars made claims like that in order to um, devalue and undermine the legitimacy of Islamic tradition, right? And I'm very careful in my work to make it clear that that's not my agenda. And I think it's commonly understood today that, that yeah, that's not the agenda of the kind of work that's done in Iqsa, right? We're not saying that tafsir is wrong or the Mufasirun are dumb. What we're saying is that tafsir is its own thing. It is an original creation of meaning based in the Quran, but that reflects Muslim values and, and ideas that are separated from the Quran by generations, if not centuries. Understood. And and so just, just kind of to um, get this straight, so basically there's the Quran is taking up certain things from, from Jewish writings, and then exegetes are uh, commenting on the Quran, and they kind of have, you know, their, what they're stay, saying, and then later on, Jewish exegetes are using what Muslim commentators who are writing on the Quran are saying they kind of pick that up yes that, that's exactly right that and my and and i think that this is a an untapped field <laughs> i think that we would probably find that the impact i mean you know because it's okay so part of the problem is that unlike the case with say syriac christianity right there there is a fairly robust textual tradition that that marks the um, earliest Christian responses to the rise of Islam, uh, writing you know writing in Greek, Syriac, Georgian, <laughs> other other relevant languages of of, of you know near Near Eastern Christian tradition. Um, there's a large literature that tells us exactly what Christian uh, Christian thinkers who were or, or authors who were who were contemporary with the rise of Islam, the Arab conquests, it tells us exactly what they thought. We can mark with a fair amount of precision the impact that the rise of Islam and then the elaboration of Islamic tradition that that, that, that had on Christians, say, in the first 150 years after the Hijra. That is not as much the case for for Jewish tradition, although this is, a, this is an, I think, an ongoing conversation. Uh, the real flourishing of what we could call the Judeo-Arabic, Judeo-Islamic tradition 
really occurs 150, 200 years after the rise of Islam, and we are largely lacking direct textual evidence of what the earliest Jewish responses were. I mean, we have some, we have evidence of other sorts that come, comes from Islamic literature itself, for example. There's a lot of interest, for example, in these Jewish messianic movements that emerged after the rise of Islam. Certainly there's there are texts of uh, an apocalyptic sort that are that are clearly like like Jewish authors taking older apocalyptic traditions and then reshaping them to respond to the rise of Islam. I mean there's a literature of this sort, John Reeves, other people have worked on this. But I think that we have not seen a real concerted effort to look at like say like what I would call a kind of para-rabbinic texts, right? These texts that are that that look like rabbinic texts that are part of a kind of a continuum of of cultural and religious development with pre-Islamic rabbinic tradition, but are clearly like I mean at the very least we would have to call them late rabbinic, right? Pirkei Rabbeliezer is a great example of this. It's a work that's that's produced probably around the eighth century. It draws on older Jewish tradition. It is, it expresses itself <laughs> in kind of the, a familiar voice of rabbinic tradition or midrashic tradition. Um, it is a unitary composition, not a collection, which may, which marks it as something new. But it is, I think, full of references to Islam, but and and appropriations of Islamic tradition, but but to a degree that I think has not been well understood there's been a lot of interest in the text itself but islamicists i think have not have not paid enough attention to this text and the perkita rabbi rabbi eliezer furnishes the main example cited by geiger and people who follow him of you know the, a tradition that is the proof that the story of samiri and the animate calf in the quran that this is derived from jewish tradition and i argue quite that quite clearly that what the Pirkei Rabbeliezer tradition is, is an adaptation of Tafsir tradition. So this is the kind of work that I actually try to do, kind of kind of un untangling some of these threads in the actual monograph. So I had said that, you know, in the dis dissertation, it, I did not do so much work to kind of offer a kind of positive <laughs> reinterpretation of what was going on in the Quran. Partially, I think, I, I, honestly, as a graduate student in writing in 2005, I was a little afraid to, right? It was this, it was not a climate where, you know, a student was really going to be encouraged to speculate <laughs> on, 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 on the original meaning of the Quran, I would argue. At least that was not the environment I was working in. So the, the dissertation shows, I think, that the, that the Jewish precursors are actually you know, not the sources of the Quran. I did a ton of work of kind of historical discourse analysis showing that Western scholars tend to reproduce the kinds of claims that are made in the Tafsir because of a long-standing historical dependence on Tafsir that goes back to the Middle Ages. I, I spent many pages writing about this, uh, and then I wrote quite a bit about the evolution of the calf narrative in early tafsir. So there's quite a bit in there about Mukatal, um, Tabari, and Sa'labi, because my, my advisor encouraged me to write that because it was still, I think it was kind of the, the 
par for the course that a PhD in Islamic studies had to have a lot of analysis of Arabic primary texts. <laughs> so there's a lot of material in the dissertation that I think did not hang together as a cogent project in terms of the history of interpretation of the Quranic story itself. So that was the direction I took in the monograph where I really tried to show a linear trajectory of development from biblical Israel through ancient Judaism, uh, late antique Syriac Christianity and Judaism, uh, how all of the, these kind of this long-standing conversation about the nature of the golden calf, the the, the larger abiding, you know, implications of the story, how there are these centuries and centuries of Jewish and Christian debates over what the story of the calf actually meant. What was its significance for Israel, right? This had been going on for centuries. My argument was that the Quran is directly engaging those debates, that the Quran is saying something about authority. The Quran is saying something about the relationship between Moses and Aaron. It's saying something about the nature of idolatry, right? But the Quran is not telling a story about the intrusion or the intervention of a, you know, this Samiri, the Samaritan outsider, bringing the calf to life. My argument was that that was the story that, as it was understood in the tafsir, projected in the, through the tafsir onto the Quran. But my argument is that in the book is that those elements are not actually there in the Quran. And, and so the most the most contentious argument I make probably is that Samiri is not this outside interloper, that Samuri is actually a pseudonym or an epithet for Aaron. That just as we find in the Bible that the, the calf narrative is ultimately about the relationship between God, Moses, and Aaron, that, that that is actually what's happening in the Quran as well. The Quran is mainly a dialogue between, the Quranic story is mainly a dialogue between Moses and Aaron, and the elements that we commonly associate with the Quranic story are just not there they're not indigenous to the text, that this is something that's created in tafsir for specific reasons and then becomes widespread in Islamic tradition and then is picked up by uh, Western scholars who then run with this as the standard approach to the story that's going to be recapitulated again and again and again and again over generations in translations and commentary on the Quran. Understood. And kind of going back a little bit earlier uh, to what you were saying, is there a... Is there a purpose or a, a preference or a reason that Jewish authors might use a version of a story filtered through the tafsir tradition, oh. um, as opposed to uh, kind of just using the stuff that you know, kind of the rabbinic material that the Quran itself relied on? Sure. So yeah, in, in other words, what, if, if if these Jewish traditions that are maybe what pseudo precursors, right? That these these so-called influences, which are not influences, but rather are themselves derived from Islamic tradition. Like, why would Jewish authors do this? I think that the... Well, okay, so the approach I try to take is this. And there are other people who have written about this. Essentially, I think what's going on is that if you look at the Quran as it's understood in the Islamic early Islamic milieu, right, that the, I mean, and we could argue at length, like what, you know, how is the Quran disseminated? How much knowledge of the Quran would a, somebody, like even a, a Muslim who is not an alim, right? Like, let, let alone like, like a, a Jewish person living under Islamic rule, but like, like ordinary people, like people without a religious education, 
how do they have access to Quranic meaning? I think one of the basic things that's going on is that, of course, the, the Quran is being disseminated as stories, right? That through preaching, sermons, things like this, that, 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 that certain understandings of the Quran are percolating out into the general environment and becoming kind of the common cultural currency of you know, Islamic culture as it's unfolding in that first 150, 200 years, right? We can see this in poetry, right? The early, early poetry, you'll see these random references to things in the Quran where clearly like, yeah, like this, this, this poet assumes that his author knows that if he makes some offhanded reference to this thing about Moses, or if he says this thing about like, Lukman or whatever, that, that the, the, the audience will understand the kind of resonance of the story whether or not they actually know the, the, the Quranic original. You know what I mean? So to me, it seems like by about, say, 150 years after, by the time of the Abbasid Revolution, certainly before that, probably, um, educated Jews living under Islamic rule have some sense of what the Quran is about and what Muslims claim about people like Abraham, Moses, Jesus, right? And and Gordon Newby wrote, wrote about this in a really terrific article uh, years and years ago that essentially the, the Jews would have known enough that to understand that there is a Muslim claim to not just the Bible as a text, but to kind of the entire Israelite dispensation as being theirs, right? That there's a supersessionist impulse where Islam what relocates the Israelite heritage as part of its own pedigree, right? That Muhammad is the, like, and, and of course, this, and you, I think you talked about to, to Sean about this, right? That, that in the Islamic worldview, right? Human history and certainly the history of God's kind of covenantal and revelatory relationship with humanity that culminates in Muhammad and in Muhammad's people, the Ummah, right? That, that, History, which is primarily known through the Bible, right, and is, under, is understood by Jews as their heritage and Christians as their heritage, that this has been appropriated by Muslims. And so I think one of the most interesting phenomena is that starting with texts like Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, you have Jewish scholars and writers who are living under Islamic rule who are aware of Jewish claims, excuse me, aware of Muslim claims, and they are reappropriating kind of re what's been appropriated, right? They're engaging biblical tradition, renovating it as part of the, the current Jewish heritage, the, the Jewish legacy, but they are responding to Muslim claims about, about those figures being, in fact, not Jews but Muslims, right? So there's a kind of a, a contest that's happening between spokesmen of both traditions. Muslims have a certain advantage because there's many more of them, and then of course the Islamic literary tradition is much greater, right? So I think that there's a huge percolation of traditions out through Islamic culture that Jews throughout the Islamic world can pick up on and refurbish, reinterpret in various ways, right? And so they're, but what they're ultimately doing is they are kind of like taking, taking your enemy's claims about your tradition and kind of turning them on their head, right? Trying to kind of address the claims that Muslims make in appropriating Abraham, you know, the, the Israelite like, legacy, David, Solomon, Moses, 
right? These figures are not Muslim, they are Jewish, right? Try to relocate them in a, in a heritage and a legacy that Jews understand as theirs, rather, or their community is the inheritance, inheritor of the legacy of Israel, rather than Islam being that inheritor. You know what I mean? That's really fascinating. I just wanted to ask if you could elaborate for us the Samri and Aaron relationship. Uh, sure. So, again, I think the 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 critical point for me, I think in my in my approach to the the chronic calf narrative was, I think, to focus on the the uh, understanding the the main calf story in the Quran, which is in Surah, Surah Twenty, Taha. Again, this has always been understood in both tafsir and in Western scholarship as portraying this situation where, you know, that that the calf is created by this outside interloper who's identified as a Samaritan, Samiri, that he, you know, creates a calf which is which gives the appearance of life, and then essentially Moses come is notified of this by God when he's on Sinai. He comes back to the uh, the foot of the mountain where the Israelite camp is, and he engages uh, both the Israelite people and Aaron, and finally the Sam Samiri himself about uh, you know what led up to the making of the idol, right? While he's up on Sinai uh, receiving the Torah, and the, the notion that this is a a conversation between Moses, Aaron, and Samiri again is universal, right? But the problem is that this takes the Quran out of the trajectory of the larger development of the story as it was known in Jewish and Christian precursors going back to the Second Temple period. That it makes the Quran that that it 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 there's it creates a disjuncture where all of a sudden the Quran is saying something that's radically different from what Jewish and Christian tradition has uh, has focused on in its interpretation of the biblical, the original biblical story, and this to me seemed highly unlikely, <laughs> essentially, both because the the elements that are held to distinguish the Quranic story are actually extremely vague uh, in in the Quranic text, and because they're elaborated with so much greater uh, verve and imagination and clarity, both in tafsir and in later Jewish tradition. And so I attempted to re, kind of re, reimagine what was happening in the story in terms of the biblical precursor, and I think I argue quite cogently that, in fact, what's happening in the Surah 20 story is primarily a dialogue between Moses and Aaron, and that when Moses addresses somebody as Samiri, this doesn't mean a third-party character who is the Samaritan. What he's doing is he's calling his brother Aaron a Samarian, not a Samaritan, like the people, this Israelite offshoot that was known to, uh, you know, known in late antiquity and in early Islamic period, and of course survives today. Not a Samaritan, but a Samarian, meaning uh, a person of the Samarian kingdom as it is known in biblical traditions about the calf. My argument was essentially that what the Quran is doing is casting Aaron as the inventor of a tradition of calf worship that was then later manifest in Samaria. And certain certain scholars have picked up on the fact that the Quranic story seems to evoke 
not just Exodus 32, which is the original calf story, but also seems to evoke uh, depictions of Jeroboam, who is the 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 Israelite creator of golden calf worship. That in in biblical in biblical Israel, in the the time of the uh, Israelite kingdoms. So in other words, in, in biblical Israel, there's this phenomenon of supposed calf idolatry, which I argue is actually not idolatrous, but let's not digress to that. But the, the Jeroboam of the Israelite kingdom, which is based at Samaria for a long period of its history, that Jeroboam invents this kind of, uh, in, innovates in creating this golden calf cult, which is which the deviation from the worship of the God of Israel. This tradition is held usually to have inspired the depiction of the calf the older calf worship that happened at Sinai. What the Quran is doing is basically kind of flipping it, right? It's now reading the biblical calf story through the lens of the depiction of Jeroboam. But what it's doing is saying that Jeroboam, it's not that Jeroboam, basically that Jeroboam is recapitulating something that Aaron did, and so casts Aaron in the light of Jeroboam, and so calls him the Sumerian. I, I detail this in, in a, a long chapter in my book. Um... One of the issues here is that historically, of course, as, as people listening to this podcast might know, there are two major versions of the calf story in the Quran, one in Surah 7, one in Surah 20. Surah 20 is all this stuff about the the, the, the Samaritan and the living calf, right? Samiri and the calf described as a, a calf, a body that lows. That phrase is also used in the Surah 7 version but there's no mention of, this, of this, the Samiri there, that in Surah 7, there is this, it's simply kind of a recapitulation of the biblical story, where it's primarily a dialogue between Moses and Aaron. Now, arguably, each version has its own unique emphases, but the historical argument that was often made was that, well, Muhammad heard you know, stories about a golden calf from from rabbis, he heard this stuff in the Midrash about a living calf. He heard that maybe Satan uh, inspired the calf and made it seem to come to life. He got confused. He garbled all this material, and he wrote it down in the version that we see in Surah 20. And then later on, somebody pointed out the mistake, and he fixed it. <laughs> and in Surah 7 is the quote-unquote correct version, the correct version in the eyes of Orientalists being the one that closely coheres with the Bible, of course, right? So Muhammad is confused and then fixes it. My argument is that no, that the two stories are basically telling the same story. It's just that Surah 20 uses the Samiri epithet for Aaron and the other one doesn't. What I was trying to get away get away from in this reinterpretation was this notion of like the prophet's confusion, right? Because as is well known, the Quran is full of these kind of mysterious and somewhat confusing uh, statements and allegations about about figures where, you know, the, the traditional approach to these figures is to say that, well, the Quran is garbled, that the prophet was mistaken, he was confused. There's often kind of a derogatory approach that's taken, which I think is very misguided. A, a text of the, whatever your take on the origins of the Quranic corpus is, you know, there's no there's no getting around the fact that the Quran is a highly refined, highly sophisticated uh, document from, from both a linguistic and kind of a, a narrative perspective. And so I, I think that this claim of like 
the chronic author or editor or whoever one sees as being responsible for the final final document that 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 there that that, that this is confusion or that there are these garbled passages. I think this is really wrong. And so there's a number of cases where um, people have historically talked about confusions, right? Which 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 under closer scrutiny are not confusions at all, right? Um, Adam Silverstein has this great book about Esther in later tradition, including including in the Quran and Islamic tradition, and he talks about Haman, right? That this character Haman, who is known from the story of Esther, which takes place, you know, basically in the Second Temple period under Persian rule, the Quran relocates Haman, the villain of the Esther story, to Pharaoh's court. The phrase Fir'aun wa Haman occurs in the Quran, like seven times i think right that that pharaoh and haman are the bad guys of the exodus story which of course is totally anachronistic but and there are various explanations but i think there there's a certain kind of muslim apologetic approach where oh there's a, a tradition of saying that oh it doesn't mean haman the bad guy from exodus it means that this this is a title that the title is ha'amain which means the the one who is entrusted with with responsibilities by the king. I mean, these are obviously, obviously, I think, apologetic inventions. Uh, you know, Silverstein ar- argues basically that there's a long history of Jewish interpreters conflating stories like this, and in particular, kind of making the various bad guys of biblical tradition into kind of like, you know, you know, like like a a, a like a league of evil, basically, that that they're that they're all in kind of cahoots together in their oppression of of the Jews, and so there are these traditions going back to the Second Temple period that show that depict Haman at the court of Pharaoh, even though that's wildly anachronistic. Ultimately, Silverstein argues that what's happening in the Quran is that you know Esther is not that not important, is not mentioned in the Quran, but her arch nemesis is such a symbol of oppression and tyranny in Jewish tradition that he's carried over into the Quran and he's made Pharaoh's equivalent in that in that depiction, right? The depiction of the of the Israelite experience in Egypt being all about tyranny and oppression, right? So this is this is the Quran is making a certain kind of statement about the nature of that experience by putting Haman in Egypt in the time of Moses. Again, it's it's, it's a deliberate gesture. It's not confused, right? Um, in my work on, on the calf, I, I argued sort of peripherally that another great confusion is, is that, or so-called confusion is the, the chronic reference to Mary as Uchtarun, right? That she is, there's a, a reference to, to Mary as the, the sister of Aaron. And some people have argued that this is a chronic confusion between Mary the mother of Jesus and Miriam bought Amram, the the sister of Moses and Aaron. And I think this is quite quite clearly wrong. <laughs> you know, in in uh, you know, various people have pointed out. I think Patricia Crona notes that that the Quran knows who Miriam is, right? The real the the real Miriam, the original Miriam, uh, the sister of Moses and Aaron. That the Quran, the Quran has that character, right? She basically appears. She's not named, but she appears in uh, Moses' narratives, right? But the claim that the Quran has screwed something up here, that the Prophet has made a mistake, this is an ancient claim, right? And 
and some of your listeners will probably know that there's a very old tradition that says that you know when the when the Christians of Nadron sent a, a deputation or a delegation to the prophet, they said, "Oh, prophet, we've heard that you call Mary Uchtarun. You know that's the wrong Mary. <laughs> you know that's not the, the right the right title, right?" And the prophet supposedly says, "Well." When we Arabs call someone a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister, what we really mean is a kinsman, right? That that and then what the expression means is that Mary is a descendant of Aaron, right? She's like she's uh, that they, that they are kin, that that she's not literally his his sister, right? And what I was able to argue in the book is that actually this is correct, right? That that in the Quran there are these two Imrons, right? That the Quran recognizes that there is a, an, Im, an Imran who is the father of, of Moses and Aaron and the original Miriam, right? And then there's this other Imran whom Jesus and Mary are, are, are the descendants of, right? There's two Imrons, the later Imran presumably being named after the earlier one. But what the Quran is doing in creating this, this connection is that the Quran is providing an alternative genealogy for Jesus and Mary, right? In the New Testament, Jesus is Davidic, right? He inherits kind of Judahite status through his father, Joseph, right? Joseph traces his lineage back through his father, Jesse, to, to King David. The Quran doesn't care about that, right? The Quran's emphasis is on Mary being priestly. And this is something that resonates with, there are certain late antique traditions about Mary being like having like Levitical status, right? That she is that she is priestly, and in the Quran, this is certainly her depiction, right? That she's dedicated to God, she dwells in the temple. Um, so I think my particular contribution to this this discussion is that yeah, that the Quranic depiction of Mary is priestly as well. That both Aaron and Mary have priestly status, uh, and this is expressed in particular in there. There's this verse about Samiri in 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 Surah 20, where Samiri is supposedly cursed to be an exile, right? Moses says, right? Go, go hence into exile. It is your lot in life to say, no one touch me because I am impure. And my argument is that, that, that that's not what the phrase means. The phrase is basically says, like Moses is saying to Aaron, you know, go, it's your lot or your duty and role to say nobody touch me because I am pure. That lamasasa means he is given he is given the the status of ritual purity associated with the Israelite priesthood, and this is connected to other things in the Quran as well, right? Like in like uh, Quran 19:20 refers to the Quran refers to itself as Kitab Maknun, right? None but the pure shall touch it, right? No touching because it's pure. Um, that's Sorry, I said that 1920. 1920 is the other significant refer- reference with with touching, which is Mary, right? Mary says when when the Annunciation happens, Mary, uh, you know, there's a, that, that Gabriel brings her the the news of the birth of the of uh, was it a pure son, a Hulam Zaki, right? And and she says, how am I supposed to have a son? No man has touched me. She's Lam Yim Sesni Basharun, right? No one has touched me. This no touching, I think, is an intertextual reference to her status as being priestly. I mean, yeah, it refers to her chastity, but it's an important intertextual link that connects her to Aaron. So the point is that, the big point, and I'm 
feel like I'm really digressing here, but the big point was that that the Quran that oftentimes when the Quran is said to be mistaken about things, these aren't mistakes. <laughs> these are these are subtle intertextual clues where there there are these deeper resonances that require reflection and investigation to properly understand. So Mary being called the sister of Aaron is not a mistake. It's it's deliberate. The Quran is not confused is what is is the the big takeaway there. Understood. Thank you. And I, once again, that that's very fascinating. And it just you know another reason um, for me to want to pick up your book whenever it comes out. I think sometime in August. I want to move on and and kind of ask the, the contemporary study of the Quran intersects with numerous other subjects and discourses. You know, such as the life of uh, the Prophet. Uh, the larger world of like antiquity, the Bible, Jewish and Christian tradition, and uh, the Tafsir slash you know Islamic tradition. How do these fields seem to relate to the contemporary study of the Quran as you perceive it? And can we can take this bit by maybe we can start off with uh, you know the life of the Prophet and then move from there. Sure. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> big big agenda. Okay. So so for me, I think one of the most so start with the life of the Prophet, right? Which is obviously of great relevance, great relevance to the to the Quran. I, for me, the most striking thing I think that's happened in the last 15 years or so is that, I mean, again, come you know, doing my PhD training in the first part, you know, like around like 2000 to 2005, that there was a real, at least in the circles I moved in, people I worked with, that that I think due to the prevalence of kind of revisionist skepticism about the sources, right? That is a topic that will be well known to all of your listeners. That that you know there was there was a lot of work I think done around that time on Kafsira as a literary construct, a lot of investigation into historiography, but there was a lot of skepticism about the Sira as you know historical reality, right? As a document. And, and you you talked at length with Sean Anthony about this um, today. I think that there is a renewed sense of confidence, maybe like limited confidence about uh, the historical Muhammad, right? Or at least at least a revival of interest, right? Um, over the last I'd say ten years or so, I mean, there's a lot of people have started writing about Muhammad again in in a direct positive way. Like these things happened at a certain time in a certain context, at least talking about Medin, the Medinan period, if not the Meccan period. Right. And there's a a lot of the conjecture about um, the prophet's life and how it impacts the Quran, I think is, is much more strongly anchored now in, in kind of a positivist approach, right? That um, Tilman Nagel, uh, Walid Saleh, Harold Motsky, Stephen Shoemaker, uh, most recently Juan Cole, a book that there's been some, some backlash against his book, but all, all of these people I think are writing, talking about Muhammad as like Muhammad as we know him, <laughs> largely know him from tradition, that Muhammad as being like the source of the Quran, that we can try to anchor, that there's like a hermeneutic value in trying to anchor the Quran in the life of the prophet again. Other people, are, I think, are more cautious and more skeptical, right? Um, some of you will notice, like Angelica Neuwirth, for example, right? She uses the traditional chronology, Mecca and Medinan, but will say, you know, the Quranic prophet, <laughs> right? That, that, that this locutional Quranic prophet, as opposed to like Muhammad, reflects this kind of 
hesitance or, or uncertainty about like, well, should we really try to like correlate Sira to Quran as a document? The Quran, study of the Quran as a document is maybe different from studying the life of Muhammad as reconstructed from the sources, right? But I think increasingly what we're seeing is kind of a rapprochement where people are trying to bring the life of the prophet and the Quran back into discussion or back into conversation again. You know what I mean? Um, there's also, of course, I mentioned John Toland, right? Uh, John Toland, Akisha Ali's book from a few years ago, The Lives of Muhammad. There's, I think, an increased awareness that 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 approaches to the life of the prophet are never neutral, right? That there's always there are these bigger issues at stake, which are embedded in any attempt to say anything about the life of the prophet or represent it, right? So I think that that at at some point, I think one could look again 10 years, 20 years, one could look back at the scholarship now on the Quran as it's flourishing and try to piece out, like, what are the implications in terms of what we think is going on with Muhammad, who we think Muhammad is, right? There's always been this kind of, um, I guess what, what has always made people skeptical or nervous about revisionism is this, what is often claimed to be the cornerstone of revisionism, which is the claim that the Quran is late, right? This is something that Wandsboro said in a very offhanded way, but becomes the kind of, it becomes emblematic of revisionism, right? Because now people will say like, oh, well, no, now we have this abundant evidence through material, through the material remains of the Quran Quran attrition that the Quran is not late, right? The Quran reaches its its final form very early. We have a Quran that resembles, quote unquote, our Quran very early on, like a generation after the Prophet, which is what Islamic tradition tells us, right? So revisionism is garbage. Right? You throw throw out all of the revisionist, you know, insights. But to me, I think the what revisionism was actually about was saying that so much of what the tradition preserved about the prophet was driven not just by ideology or by theology, but actually driven by uh, exegetical needs, right? That a lot of the things that we see in the Sirah are in fact glosses on passages in the Quran. Sometimes they develop in such a way where you don't even realize that these are probably stories that were taken up to just to uh, explain what's going on in the Quran. This to me seems like the indispensable insight of, of revisionism. And also, you know, revisionism also encourages us to be skeptical about, of course, like the notions of the origins of the Quran, right? Something that, something that I think a, in the early emergence of the Quran, like an, an authentically early Quran that's circulating the generation after the life of the prophet doesn't tell th fine that that doesn't tell us anything about where the Quran actually came from because of course we have a problem with like what does the Quran represent in its milieu right who is the prophet there's often this kind of understanding that well yeah like the prophet is probably this kind of a person and the tradition tells us he has this role and he comes from this place and he's a traitor and he's married to this woman Khadija and all of this stuff but you know the, the how does that person's biography relate to the actual contents of the Quran, if we see the prophet as originating the material, right? Um, Juan Cole takes this head on, and he basically has uh, Muhammad being this kind of like peripatetic prophet sage figure who, during all of his uh, mercantile trips, 
picks up all of these traditions. He's like a learned person. He has like some some religious he has religious interests. He ha- he's multilingual, and the prophet is kind of the conduit for all of this material coming together and coming to the Hejaz. And that's one approach, right? The with the revisionists, I think what Wansbro was doing was saying we have a Quran which is a really sophisticated document of late antique scripturalism that could not have emerged in a completely pagan Hejaz, right? So Wansborough's suggestion was, well, let's take the Quran out of the Hejaz. The Quran is a product of, like, Syria or Iraq, right? I think he said Iraq. Um, that's, again, another claim that's made that's associated with revisionism, which is problematic. But to explain the Quran in its late antique context, you either have to change your view of who Muhammad was pretty radically, or you have to take the Quran out of the Hejaz entirely. The other thing you can do is change your conception of what's happening in the Hejaz overall. And I think that's probably like the most common approach among people who have this kind of an interest that we're, we're, we're starting to argue that like, no, the Hejaz is actually a place where there is certainly a tradition of Arab paganism that's authentically reflected in Mecca, right? But there's also kind of a gradual kind of process of acculturation where Christianity and Judaism and maybe other religious traditions are starting to have a foothold. And there's a general kind of religious, um, I don't say awakening, but there's a general kind of like religious resurgence or ferment which is happening there. And the Quran reflects that. And and in this connection, I'm reminded of um, one of Patricia Crona's last publications was this really i'm not sure this is the one part or two part article i can't remember but uh she published this this piece on the religion of the mushrikun right like what is the religion of the pagans according to the testimony of the the quran itself and and this builds very strongly on on hodding's work which i've already mentioned that and he i think he's one of the first people to really clearly state as an aside, Hanning's one of the first people to clearly articulate that Quranic discourse does not reflect uh, a conversation between like a scripturalist and a pa- and pagans, right? It seems to reflect dialogue between people who are all scripturalists, right? That there's some some there are elaborate religious conceptions being evoked and and circulated here. And this was Corona's take on this that if you look at the way the Quran represents the religion of the so-called pagans that they themselves seem to reflect some sort of scriptural knowledge that there is this kind of biblicized monotheism which is in the environment that these people are familiar with but to some extent they are rejecting right they're rejecting the claim of life after death for example right which makes them sound like sadducees but anyway but her point was just that 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 the testimony of the quran seems to imply that you know Muhammad is not entirely not not embedded in an entirely pagan environment that there's something different about the environment which then has to be connected to larger patterns of uh, kind of a late antique social and religious transformation how about the larger world of late antiquity how does that relate to the study of the Quran and I know you touched upon this a little bit earlier but I was hoping you could just kind of expand right so yeah that, that's a, a good segue right because <clears throat> so and again going going back to the early the early aughts right that a lot of when you looked at the literature on islamic origins from you know 
the you know whatever was being produced in the 90s through the through the early 2000s that that you still see this kind of like a bifurcation that there's like the Quran's background on the one hand there is pagan arabia right and on the other hand there's the larger late antique world and when we're talking about the larger late antique world it's kind of like you're imagining that oh yeah well you know there are these two great empires rome and persia and then there's this religious ferment and there are maybe kind of like missionaries, kind of <laughs> like the Jews have some footholds in Arabia and Christian missionaries are kind of coming and going. And maybe there's some Zoroastrian influence in the East. But but there's always this kind of dichotomy, right? Like pagan Arabia, larger late antique environment. And I think one of the more interesting developments of recent years is that, you know, people, uh, it's a subtle point, but it's like we're, we're now imagining like late antique Arabia, right? Like that pagan... That the, the, the so-called pagan Hejaz is already kind of embedded in a larger late antique world where these patterns of cultural transformation, social ferment, that that, that Arabia is, at least the, the settled populations, are what embedded in these larger processes, that, that Arabia is not the backwater <laughs> that that it that it was often imagined to be, and it's not it's not the 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 emergence of Islam does not happen in isolation or it's not just casually touched by these larger things, but it is actually part embedded in or, or part of this larger process whereby there is this kind of spread of prophetic movements. There is this, there are these pushes towards monotheization in various places, like peripheral communities are being mono, monotheized, <laughs> being exposed to and integrated into larger polities through through monotheism, right? That that what's happening with like say the Yemen, for example, is probably also happening in the Hijaz, right? You have to tinker with your idea of what the Hijaz is or what you might find there to some degree, but overall I think now you've seen a lot of literature where people like like just offhandedly like Glenn Bowersock, for example, Bowersock's written a bunch of books about this where that that Arabia on the eve of Islam is already being drawn into the larger late antique world, and that there is a lot of contact between the the tribal, set, you know, settled urban populate urban and also maybe Bedouin populations of Arabia. That there's a lot of contact with, uh, with the the larger world, particularly like the Roman Empire, right? So again, it's a it's a subtle point, but I think that we're we're there's increasing interest in thinking about Islam as a late antique religion, not just in its phase when you know Muslims take over, like say Syria or Iraq, but but in in that in the Hijaz phase, right? That the emergence of Islam in its in its that original kernel that that also has to do with the populations in more peripheral places in the the late antique world are being drawn into the imperial conflict and one of the main ways that political affiliation or political resistance is expressed is through religion right so muhammad's new movement this new monotheistic community that they are expressing a certain kind of like political ideological identity as well as kind of reforming Arabian religion, the old kind of like Montgomery Watt idea that, that Islam is a, is a social reform. It's a social reform, but it's also kind of a political gesture, right? Uh, Juan Cole, I think, again, his book is great for talking about this. He, again, people have been very skeptical about Cole's description of early Islam as a, or the, the prophet as a peacemaker <laughs> rather than a, a jihadist, right? The jihadist uh, originating the jihadist pattern, but I, I think that you know you can 
you can debate that, but I think that what he's got kind of dead on is that the prophet is probably very aware of political alignments and sees himself as kind of triangulating between these different interests, right? That there's a, there's a Persian presence and there's a Roman presence and that they had certain roles to play in the, in the, the environment of the Hejaz and that this place was politically evolving as well as culturally and religiously evolving. This kind of holistic approach or like attention to this larger context, I think is increasingly uh, widespread. Thank you. And then I think these two uh, next fields is, you know, you've been touching upon throughout the whole episode, but I think it's important just to ask them again, um, how does, you know, the Bible and Christian tradition, again, relate to the contemporary study of the Quran? Yeah, so this is, this is, of course, like one of my big themes, (laughs) right? That that this is, this question of how we relate the Quran to Bible, Midrash, Christian tradition. I mean, this is something something I've talked about a lot, and uh, the, the whole the introduction to my book is an attempt to kind of you know take take this 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 question of kind of disciplinary and discursive location seriously, right? Like, how what does it mean to compare Bible and Quran? What does it mean to try to embed the Quran in a larger, say, Jewish and Christian matrix? Right? For me, one of the big Issues and, and people, I mean, I'm sure people have, have heard me speak about this. They're like, oh, influence again. Yes, influence again. That that historically, since the time of Geiger in the early 19th century, there was this kind of knee-jerk approach that when you're looking at material in the Quran that resonates <laughs> with with uh, supposed or actual Jewish or Christian precursors, that this is evidence of you know influence, dependence, copying borrowing there was this historical emphasis on the derivative and thus um subordinate or inferior nature of the quran right this goes back to geiger who had a very kind of a checkered legacy uh, there is no shortage of examples of people who worked in in say a century and a half after geiger who approached the quran in this kind of reductive way that like yeah I mean, even if they weren't working in a polemical vein, and many of them were, there's this kind of understanding that like, oh yeah, the Quran is secondary. It's derivative. Like at the most, you might think like, oh, the Quran's doing something interesting with this borrowed material. And I think that what we thankfully have seen over the last several years is that people talk about the Quran's parallels and precursors, but we now recognize that it's extremely problematic to see that relationship as one that's characterized that should be characterized as derivative, right, or as passive. And I think that, for me, again, like the that just to recognize the the, the great, <laughs> I think the people, the, the 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 giants on whose shoulders we stand, um, Angelica Neuwirth. I mean, happily, her work is being, I think, now really really widely read in in you know English language <laughs> circles. Um, she has a number of works that have been translated or, or, or presented in English, but Neuwirth has a very sophisticated way of talking about, um, you know, Muhammad and his people being a, a new monotheistic community, which harkens back to the legacy of biblical Israel, which sees itself as, you know, part of a continuum of revelatory and prophetic experience going back to the Israelites and beyond. Right. And is, that there's this very complex kind of dialogue that's occurring between the Quran, its community, these 
other monotheistic communities in the environment, uh, and these older textual traditions, and those relationships are so subtle, so sophisticated, that you, you cannot reduce them to mere borrowing, right? The Quran is in dialogue with these older traditions, but it's constantly appropriating, refurbishing, reimagining them, right? It's it's completely misleading to talk about these these relationships as one simply of of say passive dependence. And so I think that this is and I think that people have kind of caught on to this so that at at most people will I say at worst people will say well there's a thing in the Quran it has a Syriac precursor you know, this is this is maybe the relationship. There isn't a lot of emphasis on borrowing independence, even if that's the implication. I would say we could probably do a lot more collectively to try to articulate, as Norvreth has, and as I try to do in my book, a more positive positive uh, model of how this appropriation and repurposing of older traditions in the Quran and Islamic tradition works. And what I mean, I mean positive in two senses. One positive, of course, like having a uh, have, not having a negative, <laughs> not having a negative nuance, but also positive in the sense of like actively trying to like describe the social and political contexts that that surround this this activity of uh, engagement, reinterpretation, you know, active exegesis that's happening in in the Quran and it's the the textual tradition that it's articulating that's then taken over into early Islam and turned into the common scriptural heritage that informs you know all muslims through the through the the tafsir tradition i understand and finally i think that's that's a good way to kind of bring this up and how does uh how does the tafsir tradition uh the islamic tradition kind of relate to study of the Quran then right so yeah th- this, is, this is something that kind of bothers me a little bit actually so um for a few years, I would say probably around from from maybe 2008 to about 2012, it seemed like there was this, which of course parallels the rise of ICSA, right, the, re, the renovation of chronic studies uh, in other circles as well, that for a few years, there was a lot of interest in Tafsir as, you know, a literature in its own right. It seemed like for a long time, there weren't that many people working on Tafsir. Like Andrew Rippon was like, like maybe the... the best known person who made tons of contributions to our understanding of tafsir uh people other people sporadically publishing on tafsir talking about tafsir you know as a discourse itself not as you know the place you look if you want to know what the quran says right um but for a number of years there it seemed like there was a sudden flourishing that people were writing dissertations about certain topics in tafsir that people were, you know, the whole second half of my dissertation is about the golden calf in Tafsir. Um, people were writing dissertations and then monographs about specific commentators, right? There were a number of conferences. Uh, there have been a number of publications. Uh, like like ta- Tafsir being recognized as having a an intellectual integrity and importance in its own right. And, and I feel like this, there was this flourishing of interest and it's kind of, subsided a bit right we haven't seen quite as much uh activity in the last few years as there was early on in this decade and maybe that's i mean that that we could talk about why that is but i think that it's sometimes how put this i think that the best scholarship on the quran is very careful not to 
denigrate tafsir as something secondary, right? That 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 while we certainly want to distinguish the Quran and tafsir as being separate enterprises, right? The Quran reflects <laughs> conditions in the Hijaz at a certain juncture. The tafsir represents, you know, the unfolding of a literary, literary and intellectual discourse of reception of the Quran in Islamic culture, right? Those are two separate things. I'm not saying that when you look at tafsir, what what you're necessarily seeing is radically different from what's in the Quran, but we want to acknowledge that the, the commentary tradition unfolds and develops in a starkly different environment, right? And taking on tafsir and its approach and its understandings of the Quran as something autonomous, this is very important, <laughs> right? And to me, it seems like the emphasis on the Quran as being kind of original has now, and 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 be, being something that we've unlatched from, or un, you know that separated from tafsir. Now I fear that, that we're actually kind of like we've orphaned tafsir, right? There isn't. I, I feel like there isn't enough work on tafsir per se, right, as an intellectual discourse, right? And what I try to emphasize in my work is that that there's a continuum, right? If you're interested in the late antique roots of the Quran and how the, say, how, how in late antiquity the Bible is reinterpreted and then the, those reinterpret, reinterpretations inform the Quran, well, you know, keep moving forward, right? You then have to talk about how the Muslim commentators on the Quran are heirs to a very complicated legacy where they are engaging the Quran as this older authoritative document. They are often aware of Jewish and Christian claims about their own scriptures. They're sometimes working in an environment where they know that Jews and Christians say their own kinds of things about the Quran. They're navigating between all of these cultural strands. The Mufassirun, of course, are all also always responding to intellectual trends in their own environment, right? When a, Muf when a Mufasir engages a verse in the Quran, there is a lot being brought to bear there, right? And especially if this is a verse that has to do with Jews or Christians, or is something contentious in the biblical legacy that's been brought over into the Quran that is contested by Jews and Christians, there is a lot going on there. And we should be paying attention to the Muslim engagement with the Bible and Jewish, and Jewish and Christian tradition in the Quran and we should be paying as much attention to this as we are to the Quran itself. And again, it seems to me like there's more emphasis now put on the Quran, and I think that's kind of too bad. Um, but we shouldn't be viewing Islamic texts that interpret the Quran or interpret the Bible through the Quran as necessarily secondary or of you know, less interest. But it just seems like that's something that you know that that is kind of an effect of of the direction of scholarship now, which is like a very heavy emphasis on the Quran itself. Uh, to me, there is so much <laughs> that has has yet to really be understood about the unfolding of scriptural tradition, you know, from late antiquity through the Quran into Islamic tradition. That, that there's so much to, be, to talk about here that is not well understood. For example, and maybe I'll, I'll conclude with this because we talked about this earlier, is this term Israeliyat, right? There's this term that comes up in Muslim discussions of Jewish and Christian material in the tradition. Muslims at some point claim that Jews and, Jews and Christians, particularly Jews, tried to subvert or undermine Islam by transmitting these confusing, you know, not, not authoritative traditions into Islam. There was an attempt by 
Muslim spokesmen to kind of ferret these traditions out, um, to kind of designate them as Israeliat and evaluate them, right? Israeliat, which just means Jewish stuff, right? Although I argue that in some in some cases Israeliat really does mean like Jewish influences, right? In, in, in a pejorative sense, but you know it, it's it's not uncommon to find this term Israeliat used in the Islamic world today. And sometimes there's an attempt to use it even as a neutral term, right? I, I believe that, I mean, you will you will find publications, I think there's even a journal of Israeliat studies so that's published somewhere. I mean, the, the, the term is used as if it's an objective term, and sometimes Western scholars will use Israeliat offhandedly as well. And, and this kind of, this, 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 this bothers me a bit because I don't think Israeliat is a neutral term for, it's used as, to mean like, oh, like traditions that were transmitted transmitted from converts to Islam that talk about biblical tradition and they're used to interpret the Quran. I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of the off offhanded way that the term is used, but but if you look at the history of the, the term, right, I think it's indisputable that Israeliat was coined relatively late, right? It was popularized at a late date, and it's historically been deployed in problematic ways, right? Um, Israeliat is not a neutral term, right? And sometimes, I, sometimes I'll be talking to people about my research and people will say, oh, you mean the Israeliat? I'm like, no. <laughs> um, the term is polemical, right? But scholars in the Islamic world and the Western Academy sometimes still use it as if it was neutral, right? No scholar of early Christianity uses the term heresy as if it's objective, right? Heresy is a construction, right? It reflects a, like relations of of authority, right? Um, Israeliat cannot mean neutrally traditions carried over into Islam from kitabis, right? By Israeliat, we can only mean, right, a disciplinary discourse that Muslims elaborate as a means of critiquing and renovating uh, received tradition, right? It's an instrument through which the tradition has been evaluated in different ways, and it's not a neutral term, right? So there's... I think we're we're still at the beginning of a process where we are in, begin, understanding, you know, Muslim engagements with biblical and Jewish and Christian tradition, right? The Quran is the beginning of that process, but what comes after the Quran, right? The dialogues and engagements, reinterpretations, all of these complex intersections of Bible, Quran, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, right? This is a wide open field, right? The period after the Quran is 1,400 years, right? Um, the biblical tradition in or of Islam is hardly as explored as the biblical tradition in the Quran, right? So, so just as, a, as an example, this construct of Israeliat, this is a form of Muslim tr of dis Muslim discourse about Islam's origins, right? About the nature of the Quran, how Islam relates to other scriptural traditions, how Judaism and its intersections with Islam should be understood, but it's a very complex kind of political, ideological construct, right? Um, and, and so I, I guess what, what I want to emphasize here is that, so, you know, Israeliat is just not, not just a neutral term for these borrowed traditions, right? It's, it's a discourse of Muslims reacting to supposed foreign intrusions in the tradition and trying to understand them, often in terms of kind of portraying them as, as the, you know, 
the, a negative relationship with Judaism. In other words, this is a, Israeliot as a construct is a very complex idea, and it's hardly been explored. And I still see people talking about Israeliot as if it was something that you could just offhandedly refer to, right? There's been a ton of work on the Quran and its, and its late antique background, but I think that the history of Muslim understandings of Judaism and its relationship to Islam, this is something that still requires a lot of, of scholarly attention, and it's hardly been been done. So when we talk about Quran, Tafsir, Bible, Midrash, there's a lot left to be, a lot of work left to be done in terms of like figuring out how these things are configured in relationship to one another in the Islamic tradition itself. Understood. Thank you so very much. Um, this was a very, very interesting conversation, uh, Doctor. I Before I conclude, I just wanted to ask, what projects are you currently working on, if any? Sure. So I have, I have a number of things that I'm trying to move ahead. Uh, I have right now I'm actually working on Cain and Abel, There's the very well-known Cain and Abel tradition in the Quran that has a somewhat complex and problematic relationship to uh, Jewish and Christian precursors. Uh, I have an article on Tabari's perception of the calf that was a big part of my dissertation that I have never published that I would like to move forward soon. Um, my larger projects include uh, the an edition of a British library manuscript I've worked on for a long time, which is a which I've argued is a, it's an anonymous and otherwise unknown work. But my argument is that this manuscript is a an early Fatimid propaganda piece that um, describes the Sunni Shia relationship in basically biblical terms <laughs> and, and invokes biblical history alongside Islamic history. Uh, very complex work that, I, that I've been working on for a long time. Um, I also have a larger project that I'm trying to kind of get a handle on that would be kind of a reevaluation or rehabilitation of Geiger's project. Going back to uh, Abraham Geiger's work, you know, what has, what has Muhammad borrowed from Judaism, right? Looking at Geiger's 19th century project and his methods and his sources and looking at some of his case studies and trying to kind of rehabilitate Geiger or re, or reorient Geiger's arguments about the nature of the relationship between the Quran and its uh, Jewish precursors specifically and, and talking about how in many cases, Geiger was correct to see a relationship between traditions, but he misconstrued them. So in some cases, what Geiger said was a simple, as I, as I talked before, what Geiger sees, sees as a, a, mis, a mistake or a misunderstanding on Muhammad's part is actually a very subtle reinterpretation. Or in other cases, Geiger will say, tradition X, like say the golden calf, this comes from a Jewish precursor. There are many cases in which actually what Geiger has pointed to is a Jewish adaptation of something from the Tafsir. So Geiger has gotten the chronology of development wrong. I I am trying to figure out like a way to kind of collect some of my research on Geiger and his sources and these kind of case studies and put them together into a monograph of some sort. So that would ultimately about be about kind of rethinking Geiger as a way to what to as a way to think about the the Jewish background to the Quran, something like that. Understood. Thank you once again, Doctor, for giving me so much of your time in this very insightful, fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, and with that, I would like to conclude the episode. Mm-hmm.